Well, now I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, one of the most uh, familiar chapters of the Old Testament, but I think a chapter that will have some good encouraging words and direction for us this morning. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, we certainly all recognize that we live in very difficult days. Uh, The coronavirus has driven us all into uncharted, unmapped waters, never really navigated before uh, by our country. We kind of live like we, and we feel like we're in a raft floating down the Amazon River, violent, dangerous river without oars, and we don't really know what lies ahead. Rafting down this river, we don't know if we're going to hit some rough white water, which will eventually calm down, or whether we're heading towards a waterfall to be broken up by the rocks below. We simply just don't know. No one is really excited about the order to shelter in place through the month of April. I must admit, I'm certainly not excited about it. I don't think anyone is. No one wants to lose their jobs, and yet we've had over 10 million unemployment claims in the last two weeks alone. 10 million within our country. The hardships that will come from this are phenomenal. We go into stores, we're afraid to get close to people, someone gets too close to us, we give them kind of a dirty look because, you know, they might spread their germs or their virus to us. We're not supposed to violate the social distancing. This has affected the way we we relate to one another on a tremendous level. People now kind of treat others like lepers, that they're a contagious threat to our life. Uh, if they get too close to us in the store. Parents have reported that their children are going stir-crazy, being at home so much. And I think in light of the fact that this virus has come from China, maybe we should uh, rename this stir-fry crazy. I don't know. Just just a thought. But obviously, uh, families are being pressured. Things are changing. We're having to adjust to kind of a new way of life. Uh, There's been serious catastrophes in the areas of our health. I just noticed that uh, so far as of this morning that in in the United States there's been 8,500 deaths approximately with over 300,000 people testing positive for the coronavirus. And obviously it's affected our wealth, stock market, Businesses shutting down, again, people losing jobs. And the, uh, the future is not, uh, is not encouraging. It's somewhat grim from what the experts are telling us. They're telling us that in America we could have as many as 93,000 deaths all the way up to a quarter of a million deaths because of the coronavirus. Now, we all hope that their models are wrong, But that's what they're predicting. So if we're at 8,500 deaths now, and they think it might peak at the end of April, then there's going to be a a terrible uh, short-term 
uh, consequence ahead of us if they are true. Hopefully they're not. But the road certainly is uncertain. And during this time, we'll be tempted to discouragement, tempted to distress, depression, impatience, anger, and frustration. But we have to remember that God's people have gone through similar times like this in the past many times. And so we're reminded how should we be responding uh, in light of the coronavirus and in light of the order of sheltering in place and all the hardships and challenges that are going uh, with that. And this is why I think Isaiah was given some tremendous words of comfort and encouragement uh, to the people of God. So I have you turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Hopefully you're there. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 27 and see if we can glean some guidance and encouragement for how we should respond in the day in which we live. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let me see if I can... There we go. Thank you. So as we begin to look at this passage from Isaiah, I want us to notice the threat the hope, and the response. Now the threat in the context of Isaiah is basically twofold. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and I'm speaking very generally, but Isaiah is prophesying that the Assyrians would come and invade their land, and ultimately that he would bring great, they would bring great judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. Now this was fulfilled in 722 B.C. And Isaiah began writing his prophecies before this time. So he is telling them that because of their sin, because of their idolatry, that God is going to raise up the Assyrians and they're going to invade the land. And when they come, they will destroy everything. They will chop down trees. They will burn down houses. They will kill people by the hundreds of thousands. And they would cart many of them off to captivity. It would be a tremendous devastation. And interwoven in this strong message of judgment was a very minor theme of future restoration. Now that's in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And then we come to chapter 40 through basically chapter 48. And in this section of the prophecy of Isaiah, he now tells them that Judah 
The nation in the south will not escape judgment either. That even though the Assyrians will come and judge Israel to the north, the Babylonians will come and judge Judah in the south. That the Babylonians will invade. That they will destroy Jerusalem. That they will destroy the temple. That they will slaughter many. They will cart off many to captivity in Babylon. And this occurred in 586 B.C. And Isaiah has been given the grace of God to prophesy of these future events. In other words, due to their sin and idolatry and turning away from God, God will send upon them the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to come in judgment. And that is their future. That is their threat. That is the danger they were all facing. And what's so interesting about this is that we're kind of in a similar situation. We're being invaded. Only it's not prophetic. It's happening even now. Not by Babylonians or Assyrians, but by a Chinese virus. In effect, it is invading our land. And the attack has already started. The enemy has invaded our lands, our cities, our neighborhoods, our homes. Again, the death rate already, as I mentioned earlier, is about 8,500 people in America alone far greater around the world. Many have died. Many are sick. Many are suffering. And again, we are told that uh, we're at the basically the, the beginning cycle of what's going to happen. And it's only going to get worse in the near term. That's what they're telling us. So basically, we're under attack. We have our own Assyrians and Babylonians that are going through the hospitals and going through the markets and wherever people gather, there's a potential for this virus to spread. It has invaded us. That is our threat. And because of that, many people have fallen into great fear and great anxiety as businesses shut down and employment skyrockets. And for many people, this is a sinking time for them spiritually. Just like when Peter, walking on the water to Christ, began to take his eyes off of the Lord and put them on the white cap waves around him. And he became very fearful and began to sink. And this is not how we're to respond. But yet many people uh, fall under this fear, the spirit of fear and the spirit of anxiety. So that is the threat. The threat of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and our threat today, the threat of the virus spreading out, bringing death, bringing tremendous upheaval within our society, which is going on even now. But next I'd like for us to look at the hope. And that's really what we see in Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 40. Because now that we begin to look at this section where the Babylonians are, are more prominent in coming in to destroy Judah, that Isaiah also is given a message of tremendous hope that running parallel with the future coming of the Babylonians, there is a dominant theme in Isaiah 40, really through the end of Isaiah, of God's grace and God's mercy and God's future restoration of His people. This is a tremendous beginning point for this wonderful message of hope 
and comfort to God's people in times of danger, destruction, and death. See how the chapter opens up in verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And notice how it begins. Comfort, O comfort my people. And in the Hebrew, this is an imperative mood. This is a command. In other words, God is commanding His prophets to preach to the people, comfort, O comfort the people of God. Have comfort from the Lord. So that God is commanding the prophets to bring this great word of comfort to His people. So starting in chapter 40, though there is more judgment prophesied, there is a tremendous message of encouragement, comfort, and hope that the Lord gives to His people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the most eloquent and moving chapters in the Bible. And Edwin J. Young, one of the great commentators on the prophecy of Isaiah, says when one turns from the 39th chapter to the 40th chapter, it's as though he steps out of darkness of judgment into the light of salvation. So this is what we we are beginning to see starting in Isaiah chapter 40. One of the great themes that begins to be developed here is that there will be the coming of a of the Messiah, the Deliverer, who is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And you're going to find that throughout the book of Isaiah, Jesus Christ is prominent. The prophecies are glorious of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find them throughout the book. But it is this coming Deliverer, this coming Savior, Jesus Christ, who ultimately will be the the epicenter of their hope and their comfort and their deliverance. That He eventually will come and rescue them from their sin. He will heal their land. He will bless them. And His descriptions are, are some of the greatest in all of the Old Testament. If you notice, for example, just kind of going back into Isaiah. Come on, screen. You can do it. Okay. There we go. If you look back all the way to the early chapters of Isaiah, you see some of the early prophecies of Jesus Christ. And all of these are familiar to us. Many of them are Christmas uh, prophecies that we... We delight in. For example, in Isaiah 7, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, a child will be born, a son will be given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. In chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And these are quoted in the New Testament. And then you come to Isaiah 40, the reference that he will remove their iniquity. Verse 
verse 2. And then, of course, Isaiah 53, the great Isaiah 53, that speaks of the atoning death of Christ on the cross for our sins. All of this prophesied 700 years before Jesus was even born. One of the great testimonies to the inspiration of the Word of God. So there's a great message of hope and we need to to tap into that. We need to sink our roots into this hope that Isaiah has given to us. So let's look now at our response. The response that we should have to the threat that is upon us and to the hope of comfort that the Scriptures give to us. Our response is basically threefold. There's a, we began with what we should not do. What should not be our response. And that is, don't accuse God of being limited in knowledge or uncaring. Look at verse 27 of Isaiah 40. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? So how are they responding here? Well, they're responding as if God didn't realize what was going on. They're responding as if God doesn't care. They're responding as if God is unjust. That they're being abused, they're being mistreated, they're being judged in their own mind. And that God doesn't care. Do not respond that way. Their problems that they are facing is ultimately because their God is too small and their faith is too small as well. That's what verse 27 reflects. Someone whose God is too small and whose faith is too small. And this is causing them to sink spiritually down into this complaining, impatient spirit because their God is too small and their faith is too small. That's the same thing that was true of Peter again. Remember when he was, as I've already indicated, he's out walking on the water. He's walking to Jesus. And suddenly takes his eyes off the Lord and he begins to look at all the waves around him and the white caps. And suddenly he gets full of fear and he begins to sink. And as he's sinking in the water, what does the Lord rebuke Peter for? He says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He doubted Christ. When Christ said, come to me, walk. He doubted that. His Christ was too small. His faith was too small. And he began to sink. And mark it down. It is not the size of your troubles that cause you to sink. It is the size of your God and the size of your faith. If it's too small, that will cause you to sink. That will cause you to give in to fear, to anxiety, to frustration, to worry. If our God is too small and our faith is too small. So don't respond like verse 27. For my way is hidden from God. He doesn't even know. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know what's happening in my life. For His justice that is due me, He's just looking the other way and allowing all these terrible things to happen. That God is too small. And this faith is too small. That is not the way we're to respond. The way we are to respond is twofold. Number one, to look to God 
And number two, to wait on God. Let's look at to look to God. I want you to look back up to verse 26. This is how they should respond, though they are standing on the threshold of being invaded by the Assyrians and the Babylonians who will bring great destruction, great death, great harm to their lands and to their lives. How should they respond? In verse 26, Isaiah tells them to lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength not one of his power, not one of them is missing. So we need to look to God. That's the first thing that we need to do in light of the threat, the danger, the death that is already invading our own land. We need to look to God. But I want you to be mindful that before we can look to God, we first must know Him. Before you can look to God, you first must know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is one of the great messages of Isaiah again. Where Isaiah continually points out to Israel and to Judah just the depth of their sin. And he tells us basically that we're all sinners. That none of us can live up to God's standards. And all the way back in Isaiah chapter 1, the whole prophecy begins with an indictment of, the, of the, just how, how deeply penetrating sin is in their lives and their hearts. In Isaiah 1, he says in verse 5, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged. Not softened with oil. And what Isaiah is doing is he's using a, a, and the, the imagery of physical sickness and disease to describe their spiritual sickness and disease. He's saying in effect that from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you are full of sin in the eyes of God. That they're like bruises and welts and raw wounds that are oozing with, that have not been pressed out or bandaged. That is your soul. That is a condition of your spirit before God. We are all sinners. And before you can really look to God and call upon God for His comfort, you must first know God. And you know God by beginning to acknowledge to yourself that I am a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Psalms talk about that God looks over the entirety of the earth to see if there's but one righteous. And there is not one righteous, not even one. You and I are sinners before a holy and a righteous God. And we face the threat of a coming judgment that is far greater than the Babylonians, far greater than the Assyrians, far greater than any coronavirus. We face the threat of God's holy judgment on the last day. And we are sinners. And we are naked before Him. We have no hope in ourselves. So we are all sinners. 
but to know Him. Secondly, we also find the incredible blessing that the only, only the sacrifice of the Lamb of God can save us. We are sinners. We need to be forgiven. We need to be saved. God's ultimate final judgment is coming. It's on the horizon like the Assyrians and the Babylonians far greater than their judgment. And we stand awaiting that ultimate judgment to come. And it is only the Lamb of God that can save us from our sins. The glorious Isaiah 53 verse 5. One of the incredible prophecies of the Old Testament. Describing in detail what Christ did for us on Calvary's cross. And we read in verse 5 that He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. You cannot save yourself. You cannot scrape the sin off of your body or your soul. You cannot get rid of it. It has penetrated bone deep. We cannot in any way heal ourselves. We must be healed by Christ and Christ alone. And how does that happen? Thirdly, we must personally repent and put our trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Isaiah 45, verse 22, Isaiah tells the people to turn to Me, speaking for the Lord, turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other God. There's no other religion that can save you. Only Jesus Christ. Only the God of the Bible. Turn to Me, God says, and be saved. Come, I will forgive you. Repent and believe in Me and I will save you. What a glorious invitation. So that before we can look to God to find His comfort, we must first know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And assuming that we have done that, and if you have not, I hope and pray by God's grace that you will. Not tomorrow, not next week, but right now. That you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. And I trust that we have all done that. And then we look to God by dwelling on God's greatness. This is what Isaiah is telling the people. To look to the greatness of God. And when God becomes so big, as He rightfully is, then our problems will have a tendency to become rather small. So we look to God. Well, Isaiah 40 is one of the best places to look and see the greatness of God. If you will, turn back to verse 12 of Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 12. Just to read part of this chapter for you that we might gaze upon the glory of the greatness of God. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or who is His counselor has informed Him? 
With whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice? And taught Him knowledge? And informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They're regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree and that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And His inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is He who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So that in this passage, Isaiah is exhorting the people to lift up their eyes on high, to see the greatness of their God. He's greater than the Assyrians. He's greater than the Babylonians. He's greater than any threat that faces them. He's greater than all creation. He's greater than all human wisdom. He's greater than all the nations. He's greater than all idols and gods. He's greater than all mankind. He's greater than all the rulers. And He created the stars of the heavens. He leads them out. He even calls them all by names. And I love that. I'm astounded when I read passages like this because astronomers have now told us that there are two trillion of them out there in space. Two trillion, not stars, two trillion galaxies. And each galaxy has hundreds of of millions of stars in it. And yet, our God is so great, He created all of it. He stretches it all out into the universe, and He calls them all by name. So great is our God. Let the people of God lift up their eyes and look upon God and let them find their hope and their comfort in Him. Both through natural revelation and special revelation, the Scriptures, we are called upon to gaze upon the greatness of His glory. To look upon God. Because when our God is big, 
our troubles will be small. And when God is big, your anxieties and your fears will melt away as a cube of ice under a hot summer sun. So Isaiah says, people of God, yes, you have threats. Yes, you have dangers. Yes, you have invasions. Keep your eyes on God. He is greater than anything that might confront you in the future. From looking upon God, then he concludes by waiting on God. Verse 30 and 31. He says, Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Well, we're in in days of waiting, aren't we? Uh, We've been told to shelter in place through the month of April. So this is April the 5th, or at the beginning of the month. We've got a long way to go, and maybe longer than that. We don't know how long we'll have to, quote, shelter in place. And that requires us to be patient and to be waiting. Hopefully, at some point, things will return back to a certain level of normalcy. But Isaiah says, wait on the Lord. When you have these kind of threats, and when you have the hope of God, you must look to God and wait on the Lord. And that there are blessings to those who do that. Well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, it's certainly not a passive waiting. We're not just talking about sitting around, twiddling our thumbs, just kind of looking around, being passive. No, it's a very much an active type of waiting. In other words, it's a waiting where we need to be continually washing our minds in the greatness of God and in the promises of God. It's a very active kind of waiting, not a, not a passive idle kind. So we're to wait, for example, knowing that uh, first off that He's in control. Uh, obviously, we, uh, we, we know this. We know our Bibles. Uh, we know that all that's happening, whether it's the, the Syrians or the Babylonians or the coronavirus is not the result of happenstance or chance or luck. If that was the case, then there would be no hope. But rather, we're to remind ourselves that our God is in control. Every single virus is under His control. It cannot move. It cannot do anything apart from His control. We don't understand the the will of God in all these things, but we do know that He's in control. And that is how we should wait upon the Lord. Reminding ourselves that the Lord is in control. Now in Isaiah, that comes out loud and clear when Isaiah continually will tell Israel, look, God is raising up the Assyrians. God is raising up the Babylonians. And God is the one doing it. God is in control of them. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria! the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. And that throughout Isaiah, Isaiah continually reminds the people, look, 
The Assyrians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. But it's God who's sending them. It's God who's controlling them. They are a tool in God's hands to punish you for your sin. And throughout Isaiah, he continually reminds the people of God when God says, look, I have planned it all. It's going to come to pass exactly as I have determined it. Trust in Me. I'm in control. I am the sovereign Lord God over all of this. So wait in patience. Waiting, knowing that God is in control. And that helps us to wait when we are reminded and are confident that the Lord knows what He's doing. That He's in control. And He calls upon us to wait. To wait with those truths frequently making their laps in our mind to remind us and encourage us. So how do we wait? We wait actively. We wait reminding ourselves that God is in control. Secondly, we remind ourselves that God's timing is perfect and we're waiting upon God's perfect timing to actually come to pass. This uh, does require us to be patient. Because God's timing for the end of this may not be our timing. <clears throat> My timing was two weeks ago. And uh, we all wish that it would end immediately. Uh, but we're going to have to be patient and wait on the Lord. He's got the end date already predestined from before the foundations of the world. And His timing is perfect. And we need to learn to wait on Him and trust Him for that. Now, waiting doesn't come easy to us. I think for most of us, we hate to wait. Uh, it's just when we guys go into Lowe's and we buy our tools or we buy our box of nails or, or we go to the grocery store, include the ladies on that, and you fill up your grocery cart full of uh, food and it's time to check out. So you walk to all the aisles and I don't know of anybody that looks at all the different counters and they find the one with the most people in it and then they go and get behind that line because after I just love to wait and waste my time. No, we don't do that because we hate to wait. And we're all impatient. And whenever I get in that situation, man, I'm looking at every lane and I'm counting up how many people are in there. There's three in this one. There's two in that one. There's two in that Oh, there's one in that one. And then I charge. I mean, I just it's just like you're rushing to get there because we hate to wait and stand in line. This is not easy for us to wait on the Lord. It's not easy for anybody. And yet, that's what He calls us to do. It, requ- it requires us to wait with patience. Just trusting the Lord for His timing. Though it may go much longer than what we wish or desire. But the opposite of waiting with patience is to wait with impatience. And that's what Israel did in the wilderness. She waited impatiently. And that caused her to grumble and to complain and get irritable with other people and irritable with Moses and and Aaron and irritable most often with God. They began to complain against God. That's not the way we're to wait. We have to deny ourselves, die to self, give it to the Lord and wait patiently upon Him trusting in the perfection of His own timing. We're not to panic. We're not to give in to fear. Just wait upon the Lord because His timing 
is always best. I've got an old grandfather clock in my house. It doesn't work anymore, but it used to. And it used to chime every hour. Of course, there's an hour hand and a minute hand. And back when it was working, if you went, if I went and grabbed that minute hand, and if I if I moved, let's see which way you're looking. So if I moved it up to twelve o'clock and it would chime, it would go off because I moved it forward. But of course, it would chime wrongly. It wouldn't chime on the hour because I tried to rush it. I tried to advance it too quick, and it chimed, but it wasn't the right time. I think in many ways we, we find ourselves wanting to rush things, but we need to slow down and wait upon God, wait upon His timing. I've got a bunch of beautiful irises in my backyard now. And they're just starting to come up. And, and they're starting to form those small little beautiful little buds. And we've got some purple ones, some yellow ones, and some white ones. But if I walked out this afternoon and grabbed one of those little buds and peeled its petals over, I would destroy the beauty of that iris. But if we just sit back and wait and watch God at His timing, that, that little bud would, would open up into, into incredible beauty. And we're reminded that it's important to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon His timing. And this is going to test us severely. For many of us, maybe more so than others. But it will test us waiting upon God's timing when we can get back to work and get back to life and things can return back to normal Lord willing. Uh, it will test us. And this message maybe would be more appropriate in about a month from now, but maybe the Lord will remind it and, and bring it to mind uh, later on as well. So we're supposed to wait in, on the Lord, knowing that He's in control, waiting for His perfect timing, and then also just waiting for His goodness. Waiting for God to act and intervene and to bless. And He will. Because that's what He promises. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives a great little example. He says, The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. And when the early and the late rains come, well then the farmer can go out and enjoy the precious produce of the soil. Everything's ripened up. Everything's ready to be consumed. You get the blessing that's going to come for those who wait on the Lord. If you go out and harvest the field before the rains come, you're not going to get hardly anything. But if you wait, wait on the Lord, then the blessings will come. We just need to learn to wait. What Isaiah says in verse 31 is those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. These are the blessings. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And I love that. He says that if you wait upon the Lord, you will gain new strength. Just like you're younger, young again. Maybe not physically new strength. Maybe so. But spiritually new strength. You'll be invigorated again in your soul when you wait upon the Lord. Those good blessings will come. Then he references the, the wings of eagles. Well, eagles in the Bible are, are known for their, their speed. 
They soar swiftly to attack their prey with with ferocity and and with great uh, uh, speed. They're also known for their power and their ability to fly effortlessly being caught up on the drafts of the thermal currents of the air. They, They fly just without any, expending hardly any energy at all. They're just, they have all this strength and energy and power. And they can just go on and on and on. They just fly. They just, without, without showing any weariness, without showing that they're getting tired. They just fly effortlessly. And Isaiah says that those who wait for the Lord, they'll gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll have that, that, power, they'll have that, that grace, that strength, so if they don't become tired, just like an eagle, just always soaring effortlessly in the sky. He says, that's what God will do for you if you wait upon the Lord. Then He will renew your strength and you'll mount up with wings like eagles. But wait upon the Lord. We must learn to look to the Lord in saving faith and to wait on the Lord with confidence in His sovereignty, His timing, His goodness. And then He will renew our spiritual energy. He will give us grace. He will fill our lamps with fresh oil. He will cause the waters to flow again in the dry valleys of our soul. He will turn our weakness into strength for those who wait for His goodness to come. Those who do not wait upon the Lord who rush things will find more problems in their life than what they bargained for. King Saul didn't wait for Samuel to arrive and offered the sin offering by himself. And as a result, he lost his kingdom because he lost his patience. Aaron and the people of Israel didn't wait for Moses to come down from the top of Mount Sinai, but they made a golden calf to worship, and 3,000 more of them died. But Abraham and David and the great men of God who waited upon the Lord, they saw the goodness of the Lord. The Lord's goodness in this time of waiting and sheltering in place is something that we can even experience now. If we look at what God is doing, we can experience the goodness even now. Uh, On Thursday, I was one of over 550 pastors that had a Zoom conference call with Governor Stitt of Oklahoma. And it's interesting that in some of the information he was sharing with us, he was encouraging us to look at the positive side of the coronavirus. And he said that he has six kids Some of them are in college and some of them are involved in all kinds of activities. And he says since since everyone now has to shelter in place, his his kids in college has come home and they have had more meals together as a family around their table than he can remember in a long, long time. In other words, there are blessings to come even today as a result of the coronavirus. And some of the families in our own church have shared a similar blessing in that regard uh, from the family being come, being brought together again. It's a very encouraging thing. So what Isaiah tells us to do, that in times of threat, times of danger, times of disaster, whether it's the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the coronavirus, is that we need to have hope in God. 
And we need to look to God and see the greatness of His glory and the greatness of His love and the greatness of His wisdom and kindness. And we need to look to Him and compare Him with our problems and and they will gradually begin to shrink in size as we see and behold the greatness of God's glory. And then we need to wait on Him. We need to wait on Him knowing that He's in control. Knowing that His, His timing is perfect. And we need to wait on Him knowing that His goodness will come to our lives both now and in the days to come because that's the God we worship. So in conclusion, we need to find the comfort. Comfort, O comfort ye My people. As we look to God and wait upon God because we know that He loves us And He's going to work all of this for our good and for His glory. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. Wait on the Lord. He will favor those who wait upon Him. And in Lamentations 3.25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him to the person who seeks Him. The Lord is good to those who learn to wait. Therefore, my beloved, wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Well, it is the cross of Jesus Christ that enables us to have the comfort of God. It's able to have the great hope that we have of knowing that God is in control and God is going to work it out for His glory and our good because of Christ and because we know Him and we've put our faith in Him. And we can embrace the promises of God as God's children because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We can have God's comfort because of Christ's cross. His sacrifice, His satisfaction on the cross secures our blessings both now and into eternity.